On today's podcast, we have Chris Heaney. Chris Heaney was uh, a lecturer whilst I was at university um, on the adventure education degree. You worked at the University of Chichester for 12 years as a senior lecturer. Um, you did PE as well as the adventure education course, didn't you? Yeah, I, I used to teach PE and outdoor education, were specifically outdoor education related. Now you're, um, you're the programme leader on the outdoor education and learning at the University of the Highlands and Islands in Perth. So that's, uh, that's, that's certainly that's right, a change. Yeah. Um, you started that in February of 2020. Quite a cool move for you. Get to get to do all the stuff that you wanted to do that you couldn't do in Chichester, um, which notably is is a vast. We were just having a chat before. It was a there's a vast uh, array of things that Chris has done. So I'll just run through a few of them. Um, so you're a level five coach in surfing, um, leading and coaching in advanced environments. You've also completed wave ski circuits as a kid, and you're you did surf kayaking in your early twenties as well. Um, the bits that are, are really cool is the, the whitewater kayaking, the whitewater rafting. Um, you're a level four coach in whitewater kayaking. Now you also offer whitewater safety and rescue um, courses. And you've led and, uh, led and coached yeah. individuals in uh, advanced whitewater. Um, the bit that interested me was is the, uh, yeah, the, the, the GB Masters raft team. Uh, and you won medals in Euros in Bosnia in, two, in 2019. That was quite cool to, to read. Yeah, I, I was going to say yes. Yeah, paddling with, with the old fellas in uh, in Bosnia, but uh, we had a couple of wins. It was really satisfying. Um, unlike most of the other teams, even the UK-based teams, we were comprised of a, a group of blokes who would convene in Nottingham once a month to to train together. We, that was the only boat time that we had. Um, all the other GB teams would. Uh, basically be quite sort of location centric and you know either Lee Valley locals or Nottingham home Pierpoint locals or North Wales locals um, and certainly on the continent that was true where t teams would be training several times a week um, down at their, their local clubs and we, we just didn't have that luxury because I was coming from Chichester one of the guys was coming from the Lake District somebody else was in the Midlands and somebody else down in the, the far southeast so yeah, at, uh, unfortunately, I've had to give that up having moved up here. But um, I'm I'm not too sad about that because uh, coming here has opened a whole load of other doors. Yeah. Well, the, the, the notable other things that you are you're, you're a, a level two uh, mountain bike leader, um, a level one snowboard instructor. Um, you also have your SBA award, your mountain leader, um, and your Royal Yacht Association safety boat driver as well. Um, just to name a few things. And my five meter front crawl badge. <laughs> Did you get that one when you were five? Yeah, about that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, the interesting thing for you, Chris, as well, is that, um, you know, certainly most of my contemporaries, we go straight to university out, out of school. Um, you said that uh, you didn't go to university straight out of school. You went straight into the outdoor sector and you occurred a number of uh, National Governing Body Awards, hence the list below. Um, you know, and you went into a further education college at age 20 and you were teaching level two and level three programs in VTEC night courses and MVQs. Um, and you said that that led you on to your, your bachelor's and your certificate in education, that you did that on a part-time basis while you were still working. Um, yeah. But uh, you then went on to your master's and you did that whilst I was at university, didn't you? You were doing that at the University of Chichester. 
I, I think I probably was, Craig. Yeah, yeah. I was just finishing that. I think as you arrived. Yeah, I think I think we we had a few conversations about that whilst we were in your office. Yeah, yeah. No, no doubt. It uh, it it was a I'd say a labour of love, but I. I <laughs> It wasn't that long, given all of your plates that I was trying to spin, including uh, um, my first foray into fatherhood and keeping work and home life balance in order. Um, but yeah, go, going back to what you said before about doing that sort of traditional academic route, um, it may not come as a surprise to you that I, I've never considered myself to be a, an out-and-out -out academic. There was a, a paper by Lowell Collins, I don't know if he was the, or, or Lowell Collins and Dave Collins from University of Central Lancashire, where, where I was first introduced to the term pracademic, and I'm sure some people will turn their nose up at that term, but uh, that kind of resonated with me because while I've quite organically found myself drifting perhaps into the, the, the field of academia um, through the medium of outdoor education, um, I'm very much a, a practitioner at heart. And I, I started the outdoors from a, a very young age. In fact, um, when a, my, my grandparents, my grandparents passed away at, uh, about the same time I started at Chichester, we were going through old family photo albums. And I had this moment of realization that it was actually their influence that probably started us off in sorted me off in the outdoors because as a family our holidays were under canvas in Scotland or the Lake District and then as my parents got a bit bit braver they, they fit four of us into a, a VW Golf with a frame tent and a camping stove and they could because they had friends that had been over in the northeast working in the shipyards but from Switzerland um, my mum and dad started learning German and our summers would, would be spent over on the continent, touring through France and Luxembourg and Belgium, down through Germany, and then seeing these folks in Switzerland and then and coming back. So, uh, yeah, I think it, it, it has been in my DNA. And as I said before, it didn't go from school straight into higher education, felt a little bit lost. And I think my, my dad spotted a, an advert for a, a, a local outdoor education provider, City of Newcastle Outdoor Education Service, which um, elicits, I don't know, perhaps a, a, an image of green green fields and, and crags and, and rivers, but it was based in a, a terraced street in a, in a place called Heaton in the suburbs of Newcastle. And it couldn't have been less outdoor education representative if, if it tried, really. Um, but I, I got on a Kind of an apprenticeship scheme then and because i was already an active paddler i was i competed internationally by the time well at around about the age of 15 16 um and i was climbing started climbing but i suppose if you chop me in half even today it would stay water person if you read me like a stick of rock um so yeah surfing kayaking uh, of all manner white water sea kayaking open canoeing um, it, we even used to do a bit of sailing and, and windsurfing and before paddleboarding was a thing we'd get our open canoe paddles and my, my mate's dad's windsurfer and go and paddle around the, the lake on the windsurfer with the, with the open canoe paddle I think that was a, an early incarnation of stand-up paddleboarding 
so you're a trendsetter before your time. Yeah, man. <laughs> I, 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 I'm sure there's some um, indigenous island populations from the, the Pacific Rim somewhere that would uh, could probably lay earlier to claim to um, stand up paddle boarding than I, but uh, certainly in the UK, the, it, it, it wasn't a thing then. Um, but yeah, get, getting those NGV, get, getting a, a good foot on the ladder of, or a good foot on the NGB ladder um, because of my time at City of Newcastle. Um, again, there was a job came up in, in the local paper for a, a lecturer in outdoor education. And I was only, yeah, I was 20 when, when that came up. So, you know, even if I'd gone to university, I, w I wouldn't have finished university by that stage. And I, uh, I went along for interview and, and there was a, a few of us there for interview and, Older guys, I thought, there's no chance of me getting this. But all of those older guys just did one thing. There was one guy who was a skier. There was one guy that was a sailor. Whereas I had this kind of broad foundation and a reasonable level of competence and ability to deliver across a variety of activities. And they chose me over them. And I was utterly gobsmacked. Yeah. Um, perhaps only more gobsmacked when I realized I was going to have to stand up in front of other people in a classroom and deliver <laughs> i'm pretty sure i wasn't the uh, the well-honed and polished lecturer that i am today <laughs> 26 years ago or whatever it was um and to be honest I, in some instances i was only a, a year or two older than well in some instances i was about 45 years younger than me the oldest student but uh, most <laughs> of the students on the course were kind of 17 18 and i was 20 um uh, in fact, I bumped into one recently. He's, he's working as a, a raft guide on the tunnel. Really? Yeah. That's yeah. fantastic. Which company for? But yeah, Neil, I've not seen him for, yeah, over 20 years. Maybe he's not, not 26 years. Yeah. Yeah, long time. That's interesting. I mean, you, you preempted my first question and, and it was going to ask you uh, sort of who got you into it, uh, into the outdoors and who, who got you interested. You, you talked about your grandparents. So can we just talk about a little bit about your your initial interactions with that? So it's your grandparents that, that got you into the outdoors? Well, parents and grandparents, but I, my parents kind of engaged in that outdoor holiday. Um, it, it, it's not like it featured in our Monday to Friday life but fundamentally it was holidays and um, my grandparents had tents and then a trailer tent and then they progressed to a, a fancy well it wasn't a fancy caravan at all a caravan um, and that became their passion um, and because it was a cheap way to to have holidays my parents did the same um, and when I was a I was very young my dad spent his career as an architect but when i was very young he um he'd started university and then taken a break from university um so what what wasn't in particularly well-paid jobs and he he went back and finished off his studies towards the end of his 20s um so at, at which point he, he became a, an architect proper um, and obviously enjoyed the, the the lifestyle and salary benefits associated with that with that line of work but up until that point um we were very much a working class family with with working class roots and you know when you you hear about generations ago that 
generations of, of climbers and other outdoor mountaineers. Um, it, while there, there were very affluent elements of society that were engaging in these activities, these activities were probably more of an escape for working class people to get away to the countryside. Um, the climbers getting out of Sheffield and Derby and places like that, up into the Peak District for weekends, um, same in the Lake District, same in Northumberland. In fact, the, even as a, a younger bloke instructing in, in Northumberland, when I worked for the college course, actually, um, I, I remember having kids climbing on a, a crag called Corby's Crag, and there was an old boy who I would often see on the climbing wall in, in Newcastle, Burghouse Wall, and uh, his name was Nev. I don't know if it Nev Satchwell, maybe. Anyway, he's retired, but he still did. But, but he would do it on weekdays now. He, he had his free bus pass, so he'd get on the bus in Newcastle, do the probably hour and a half bus journey up to Annick, and then spend his day literally gliding around the, the rocks on, on Corby's Crag in, in spite of his advancing years. And then he'd uh, put his hobnails back on, walk back to the bus station in Annick, which is a fair trek, and then get the bus back to Newcastle. So, um, yeah, I think it, it is, I hesitate to say part of your DNA, but it, 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 it's culturally how many of us uh, of my generation and, and older brought up. It, it, it was a cheap way to be active, to have some kind of connection with nature when you're growing up on housing estates in, in urban parts of the Northeast. Um, yeah, it was just something that my, my family, my parents and grandparents valued and, and, and wanted to share with us. That's that's fantastic. And and you would, and we'll, we'll get onto it in a sec, you would have seen a, 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 a great advance in technology in those in those areas as, as you grew up as well. We'll, we'll stick to the, the, the sort of you starting in the outdoors. When did you start doing sort of the, the kayaking or, or water-based stuff? Um, we moved to a place called Whitley Bay from Wall's End. So we, we lived in a, and I mean, geographically, these places aren't particularly far apart, but we were on the outskirts of Newcastle in, in Wall's End. Um, and when I was nine, mom and dad decided to move down the coast and, and found a, a house not far from the beach, and that, that had been an ambition. My dad, in particular, has always had a, a he, he grew up in a place called North Shields, which is, again, just, um, I say towns, all of these towns just merge into each other, two, two towns over, um, probably about 15 minutes drive. Um, his grandfather worked on the, the docks, um, so growing up, strong connection with the fishing industry, the shipbuilding industry, um when, when we were little and my grand my dad's dad used to look after us his wife had died relatively young and he used to yeah, i might get emotional talking about this creek <laughs> his dad would look after my sister and i and he'd he basically traipse us around north shields and buy us fish and chips and just keep us busy for a day um so so oh, no. my, my dad had a, a particularly strong connection with the river and the, the so the, the the estuary, I suppose, rather than the river, the the the, the Tyne estuary and the coast, and he always wanted to live at, at near the beach. So we moved down to Whitley Bay. Um, as I say, I was nine, and um, 
yeah, I'd been involved in the Cubs where we lived in Wall's End. But um, so I don't think I've, I've been away on camps or anything like that with the Cubs. But came, came to Whitley Bay, started going to the, there was a, a Cub pack and a Scout pack at the end of the street in the Briar Dean. Um, and one of the lads who I piled up with at school, his brothers were also in the Scouts. And I went to, to knock on his door to, to play out one night. And he said, oh, I can't play out tonight. I'm going down to the canoe club at timeout. And at the end of timeout Long Sands, the, there is a, an old outdoor swimming pool, which is kind of built into the sea defences. And, and that's where my dad learned to swim as a kid. Um, and it, it was still functioning as, as a sort of civic amenity at that point. It, it, it was operational as a, as a pool in the summer months. Um, but when it closed, the local canoe club, which at that point was called Killingworth Canoe Club, it went on to become Timeouth Canoe and Wave Ski Club because in the time that we were there, there was a massive kind of influence on the wave ski front. But Killingworth Canoe Club was based at the outdoor pool and maybe three nights a week and on weekends, you could go down when the pool served all the public out and you could paddle in this big stone, cold water, filled with salt water from the sea. Um, yeah, so paddle around and, and it, it was probably a 50 metre pool. It was, a, it was a good size and it was wide and deep. Um, and that was it. I, I, I fell in love with being in the water. And to my dad's credit, um, as I began to get a bit more confident and want to venture out and do stuff, he joined in. So I don't think he did initially, but certainly by the time I was probably 11 or 12, he started to learn as well because he wanted to come along and keep an eye on what I was doing and where I was going and that sort of thing. Obviously, going out on river trips. On, so if, if you get out of Newcastle into the countryside, the River Tyne has a, a number of tributaries and real good quality white water um, of all grades. You know, so even if the club ran a trip on grade, a grade two section of the river, um, my dad didn't feel it was appropriate just to impose me on somebody else to look after me. He wanted to be there. Um, and I think, to be honest, Craig, that that probably ha had a, a formative effect on, on my pleasure in, in coaching other people because, because my dad got involved. I was 12 years old and I was coaching him so that he could come on the river trips with us and um, or the sea journeys or, or whatever else we did. So I've got the question now. Where were we going with this? Yeah, no, you, you answered the question perfectly. No, it, it, I mean, it was talking about who got you involved and, and, and when, what got you interested yeah. in, in the outdoors to start with. Big thing with your, your parents and for you to be um, sort of a 12-year-old lad having to coach your, coach your dad in, in some stuff and, and that sort of brought on the, the real enjoyment in, in teaching people how to, how to kayak, basically, on, on these sorts of waters. No, it's... It, it's um, it's really interesting. Um, it is a diverse range of uh, talking to different people on, on how they get into the stuff they do in the outdoors. Um, and a lot of the people I speak to, um, it is it's a lot to do with their parents, but sometimes um, one of the guests, um, it was more based around him and his friends going out. So it wasn't really um, a parent orientated thing. So, um, so it, it's it's super interesting to get yeah. people's ideas on and 
and their different experiences. Well, on that, actually, I, I should say that um, around the similar time, I got involved with the, the, the Scouts um, or the Cubs initially and, and then graduated into Scouts. Graduate is probably a strong term, isn't it? Um, progressed. And um, I had my mates who would do Scouts and who I went to school with because we were in Whitley Bay. And then most of the other lads um, were from Time Out who were going to the Canoe Club. Um, or Wall's End, there was a lad who was from the same house and estate as I lived in in Wall's End. And they, they remain my lifelong friends. Obviously, I've, I've picked up other really good pals along the way throughout life. Um, some of whom I've probably seen more of than my pals from back home. But um, the guys that I'm, I've retained friendships with over the years and who I've maybe been best man for, or, you know, featured in those major life events or the lads that I learned to paddle with in that outdoor pool at, uh, at Timo. And who I still see, even, even when I was in Chichester, when I would come up, um, the thing I would do would be go surfing or go paddling and meet, meet up with Marcus or Anth or Shane or Elliot. Not that those names mean anything to you, but... Uh... No, <laughs> but that's, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. They, mean, they mean something to you. That's the important bit. And so these these guys that you just you just mentioned, they they're obviously your um your well, I suppose you could call them water buddies because you were doing everything with them uh, related to to your water activities. Um, what got you into the the, the sort of the mountain walking or the climbing um, and, and that sort of areas? The, the the catalyst was probably the the prospect of starting on this um kind of apprenticeship. It, it was. It was called the ESF scheme, and I, I could probably admit to this now, Craig. But um, so I'd, I'd finished school. I was I'd, so the other thing alongside this, uh, and a little bit later, to kind of support the canoe club, um, me and a few of the, the guys got involved in getting our lifeguard awards or life saving awards, as it was then, so we could support the club. The health and safety became more of a thing. Initially, you just got on and did did what you liked, um, but yeah, we so a few of us did life-saving qualifications, and that was something I persevered with. And me and me mate Elliot stuck with that for quite a long time, and did some competitive lifeguarding as well. Um. So yeah, um, I I I ended up doing the whole lifeguarding and life-saving thing alongside Craig. And when I when I first left school, it, it, there was a a good few months before I started with the City Newcastle project and I was working in swimming pools um, but to get onto this scheme you had to be unemployed so I went along and presented myself and said you know I'm, I'm desperate to do this this could be a great way for me and, and you know it was long, long before the days of the internet it, it was quite hard to find options for, for ways to get your foot in the door in the outdoor well in a, a variety of fields but yeah, I didn't know of, of any other ways, and I, and I thought th this could be a great thing for, for me. Um, so I went along and they said, really sorry, you can't do it. You have to be unemployed. I went, right. Uh, how do I do that? And I said, well, you've got to be unemployed for one. So I, I, I cut back a load of hours from the all the, like, session, because I was on sessional contracts. I wasn't fixed to any one place. Went down to the job centre, Registered as, as an employed. I, I think I, I was on for about a fortnight. 
that was enough time to get me book to take back to City of Newcastle and say, right, I'm unemployed now. Um, the end. Yeah. And there was about 14 or 15 of us on that course um, back in the day. And uh, again, what the outdoors does this. Um, I was just speaking to one of the boys uh, uh, maybe six to eight weeks ago. Um, there's only two or three of us that are, are still in in the outdoors as a profession. But my, my pal George, who I, was a bit older than me, I didn't really know him from the surf scene that time out. We still we still bump into each, into each other at Long Sands, getting a wave when I go up there. So yeah, it was it was the lead up to recognizing that I, I needed to make myself a, a little bit like preparation for a job. I hadn't really done any climbing other than maybe with the scouts, but when I knew this um, outdoor apprenticeship, ESF, whatever you call it, um, option was coming up. I dragged my mate Elliot up to Berghouse Wall at Newcastle and we started climbing. And as part of that course, they wanted us to engage in our mountain leader training. So, right, well, as Ian Coleman used to say, get your boots! <laughs> um, so, started practicing my nav in the Cheviots and we did a load as part of the course um, and then ventured over the Lake District. And then it's, it's a bit like lighting the the, the touch paper you um when you get bitten by the bug you just want to keep doing stuff isn't it and that's still a, a predicament that i find myself in today is which activity do you do when you've got the, the spare time and it's all about gauging what the forecast do and what the river's like what the surf's like what the, the weather's like is, is there snow on the ground is there enough snow to take a board and head up to glenshee or um yeah so so that was kind of the um, and this was around sort of age 16 or? No. Um, so fi finished my A-levels and I started, I'd been working in the pools after finishing my A-levels, so I would have been 18. Oh, and, I, and I started with City of Newcastle on my 19th birthday. You, you, you've accomplished all of this um, sort of before you hit your, your 20s and then you, and then obviously you said you, you went into working at the Further Education College at, uh, at 20 and you were teaching uh, in, in this programme. So did that aid you in, in like keeping your skills up because you were saying that you, were, you had issues with choosing which activity you'd do in your spare time. So if you were doing like kayaking or something, then in your spare time you'd go off and you'd do something else um around that so you so if you were doing kayaking at college you'd go and do mountain stuff on your spare time no no to be honest it, it would be entirely well not not entirely it, it was largely down to conditions and you know, if, if you live in scotland or the northeast of england um then th th they can have a, a pretty significant impact on on what you can and might want to do um I think uh, when I first started at the, the college, I was only working a couple of days a week and, and I supplemented that with other freelance work. Um, but as basically year on year, my timetable got fuller and fuller. So the first year or the first semester was like one week and then the second semester was, sorry, one day and then two days. And then the second year was three days and then four days, and then five days a week. Um, so 
in that time, it would be A, about what the conditions were doing, and B, what you sort of negotiated with your pals, who, who was available and who fancied doing what, what. So I remember a few of us doing a, a blast up to the Isle of Skye with the intention of doing the cool and rage, but in the end, the conditions weren't right. So we just did some climbing on the Keok area of the cooling. Um, another time we wanted to go surfing and we ended up driving all the way up to the, the northwest corner of Scotland to a place called Sandwood Bay. Um, and it was literally the only place in the UK that had any surf and it was about a foot. But it, it, it just illustrates that, you know, it, it comes down to the people. So that on, on each occasion, so on the first occasion, I was with climbers and on the second occasion, um, it was with my surfing pals. Um, but then capitalizing on that time and, you know, no pre-kids, low life expenses and the ability to get in the car and drive to where you needed to go and not think twice about driving for yeah. 10 hours to do a thing and then turn around and come back again. Um, you can do it at that age anyway. Yeah, I haven't completely lost that. I drove to Torridon on Saturday morning, did a a full day's biking and then crashed out and then did some kayaking yesterday before driving home again. Mm. So, yeah, that's only three hours each way, not 10 hours. Well, yeah. Do the 10 hours. Um, I suppose the, the road systems in Scotland have improved slightly since since that age, as, uh, since that period yeah, of time. Somewhat. Although there's more average speed cameras, quick. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I cycled Land's Edge to John O'Groats in uh, 2015, and fortunately, yeah. you've got the old A9 next to the A9. But, you know, I was never going to be able to keep up with those average speed cameras. <laughs> <laughs> you, would, you, you actually touched on the sort of the, the pre-internet, and um, so you know, there was, it was difficult to find job opportunities and things like that, whereas it is, it's a hell of a lot easier these days because it's all put onto, onto the internet, into job sites and things like that. Um, how did you sort of progress from working at uh, the FE College in, into sort of higher education? So into, into, I suppose, the University of Chichester would have been the next step on from the Further Education College. No, no, there was a, a few intermediary steps, Craig. I um, I, I, which, funnily enough, coincided with what you've just touched on. Um, so at twenty-five, I'd finished my degree. I'd finished my level five coach within a matter of months of each other. So that was a busy couple of years leading up to that, and I decided. I, I decided quite a long while before that that when I finished my degree, and I'd been at Northumberland College for five years I wanted to go and see how other outdoor education programs ran in different parts of the world um, we must have had the internet by that point because I managed to track down a job opportunity working for Colorado Outward Bound School based out of Utah um, and I, I had a, a telephone interview with a guy called Mike Dehoff who you might remember as being named in a, a, an article um, disaster at Colorado Outward Bound that you would have done in first year um, about a, an incident where a, a young woman died fortunately that was after my time there but um, so I went and did a couple of seasons with OB well a, a season and a bit really um, 
but in between those times, I uh, my last trip in the first se- season was when the towers came down in Manhattan. Um, the trip leader or the, the, the my colleague was the trip leader. The the head of the group in, in most of the trips I'd worked on, you had lots of people converging on OB. This trip, this particular group had been pulled together. The guy was on the board for Outward Bound USA and he'd pulled this trip together. He ran an arts foundation in Connecticut and he he had some very noble ideas about pulling together this group of individuals from all walks of life. So we had young people who were at risk of getting drawn into gangs from Boston and New York, um, Hispanic community kids, um, and then all of these, um, I won't say all of these, some fantastic youth workers who were working with these young people, and then some fairly pretentious people from the arts world. Um, and he brought this group out to Connecticut, out to uh, Utah rather, and we did this trip with them. And the towers came down three days before the end of the trip. And obviously we knew nothing about it other than on the morning it happened, we remembered looking up at the sky and being baffled by the lack of air traffic. Mm. But that then obviously continued for the next few days. Um, so off the back of that trip, this guy contacted me. So my plan had been to go from Utah to Mexico mm-hmm. and do work on their sea kayak program in Mexico. But for one reason or another, that, that fell through. Um, we, when, when we came off the river, we'd basically been told we were handed newspapers and um, that it was just what one guy, it was like it's what they called a logistics guy, but it was just a redneck who could drive a truck towed rafts and he told us that world war three was about to start um so i managed to get a flight i got the first one of the first flights out of denver um and came home but this guy nick contacted me afterwards and asked if i'd like to go out to connecticut where he was based and start delivering some outward bound some outward bound some outward bound related activity on his foundation so i went and did that for a year and it turned out that they didn't really want the inconvenience, to be frank, of an outsiders coming into their foundation, people from working class and, and lower sort of economic groups going into what was a very privileged arena. So I did it for a year and then I, I decided I'd been away from the UK for a couple of years. And, you know, two years before that, I'd, I'd finished my level five. I'd, I'd done all of this stuff. But lots of, I was mindful that lots of my contemporaries were kind of catching up and I was I drifted out of the scene. Yeah. But I came back to the UK. I did a few years working in the Northwest and Scotland doing outdoor education type work with looked after children. And then I decided, because if, if you ever do that work, for some of us and, and myself included, some of the most rewarding work I've ever done but also some of the most emotionally draining. And I, and I just decided enough was enough. So I went back to the Northeast and, and did some more FA work in a different college. Um, and that college was in a place called Darlington. And while I was there, we set up a degree with Teesside University Foundation degree. And our external examiner for that program came from Chichester. Yeah. 
Um, now, the outdoor world is a small world, and I, I'd known Paul previously, but when Paul, after we'd been running our degree at Teesside, at Darlington, for a couple of years, Paul had decided he was going to make a move to University of Central Lancashire, and he got in touch with me and said, I'm leaving Chichester. Keep your eyes peeled. I think there's probably going to be a job comes up. So I did, and it did. And that's how I ended up there. Cool. Um, but that's, that, that's it's interesting. Um, as you say, the, the adventure industry is, is such a, a small industry, and and most people know each other. I, I guess as as it's as it's got more popular over the years, it's it's got bigger. But for the most part, most people still know each other, and, and a lot of it is still done by word of mouth. Um, but yeah. there is a lot more on. Uh, online now that you can you can get hold of jobs uh, a lot easier so i think what we'll do is is we'll move on to the second part and we'll start talking about um sort of the the, the technology and stuff there isn't um i say that but when you were on these sort of expeditions early 2000s so like the introduction of world uh, of the internet being introduced to the wider populace when you were out on these expeditions you you would have just been you and there wouldn't have been any real contact with the outside world um you know you're the, the sort of the second person i've spoken to that's not not around my age so of an older generation um and he made a good point i said that in the nicest way possible Very <laughs> <laughs> he, he said that when he was out on those um he was in Canada. It was a, a, a whitewater rafting um, expedition, and they had a doctor out with them um, just in case. Um, but he was saying when when they when you stopped in the evening, he said it was different now. He would have his phone there, he'd take lots of pictures, but he just sat there around the fire and just looked up at the stars, and it, it was sort of present in the moment. Do you? feel a difference from back then when you were doing those to now when you do do you feel a pressure to take pictures or something along those lines you know what Craig I, I do and it's a, a, a honestly it's a pressure that I've consciously resisted for quite some time um however recently I acquiesced um and I bought a GoPro mm -hmm. um, because it has a, an application for not only for coaching, but also for marketing and, and documenting things. Um, but I'll tell you what, I, I, I have had a bit of a, a, a philosophy change on that. I, I, was, I was always a little bit irked by these people who would run rivers with GoPros strapped to their head. Um, and within about four minutes of getting off the river, it, it was uploaded with a sexy theme tune. And it was, hey, look at me, check, check me out, look, look what we've done. Um, and I, I always thought, I need to be, I think, well, not I need to be, I, I always felt it was better to be in the moment and enjoy the moment a bit with the people that I was with and so on. And the, the lad I was biking with and paddling with at the weekend is, again, older than I. Um, by... by more than 15 years, maybe it's not 20 years, but um, so he's cut from a completely different generation as well, again. And I took a few photos while we were out, but um, I, again, I consciously resisted. I thought that it's more important that we just go with the flow of the 
activity, not not stop started for the sake of documenting things. And I still think that's right. However, um, society has gone in a way that re really means that if you don't do a bit of the use of media for coaching or marketing or documenting, then you are missing a trick. So I think it has a time and a, and a place. Um, one of the, the most prof profound digital technology kind of experiences I had was, um, I don't know if you were around, what, 2012, I, I did, I took a group of people down the Grand Canyon. And that was, you, that was the year before I was at uni. Right, okay. Um, so yeah, what, in 2001, when I first went out, I did this epic journey to get to the uh, permits office with my social security card, my $100, and I applied for a permit in 2001. And in 2012, that permit, well, in 2011, that permit came up. And in 2012, me and a bunch of mates and, and other folks did this trip. So it was, I think it was 16 people over 16 days or something like that. Um, and in all of the stuff, or almost all of the stuff, it, 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 technology had be, probably begun to filter in, but this was such a big deal. And it was so different to my experience of being in the canyons 12 years, 11 years before that, that it, it had quite a profound impact on me. So, um, the canyon was a trip I'd wanted to do since I was a kid. Kind of having a a dad that had grown up on cowboy films, even though the, the, the cowboy films weren't a, necessarily a feature of Saturday TV when I was a kid. If they were ever on, the old man would say, "Oh, watch this one. This was this one's a good one." So having that fascination with that geography of the, the American Midwest um, and the association with all those cowboy films. Then the paddling aspect, um, it was a trip I'd wanted to do from being very young. And when I worked for OB, we used to run um, a number of canyon sections. I don't know if you know this, but the, the Colorado River and the Green River and their various tributaries further upstream, um, fundamentally all feed down into a thing called Lake Powell, um, which is dammed by the Glen Canyon Dam. Below that is Grand Canyon. So you you go to um, oh, senior moment. I forget the starting place. It'll come to me in a second. Yeah. Um, what I'm saying is when I went back to, to do the canyon in 2012 with, with my group of friends, we were very close to where I'd worked all of those years before. And to be honest, the characteristics of the canyons, while the, the Grand Canyon is grand and it is big, so is... Desolation Canyon and um, Cataract Canyon and and all of those other ones upstream, but this is a much longer trip. You know, there is no, well, there is the, the, there's one perhaps getting off point if you decided you'd had a stop the ride. I want to get off. Um, there's a a place called Phantom Ranch. It's about a third or halfway down. A person could get off there, but you couldn't get all your kit off there because it's a, a mile a vertical mile hike to get back to the top of the canyon 
Um, so yeah, the, the, the Grand is a, a much more sustained trip. Um, when I worked for OB, you would do a resupply every week, a, a, a logistics Gouda, Gouda, would drive their truck across the desert and there'd be a, a boat ramp or something where you could resupply with students and get rid of the food because you had to carry that with you. Um, but when I came to do the Grand, I was so conscious of having the welfare of all of these people it, under my charge that I had um, digitally rafted the Grand Canyon and I knew all of the rapids and I'd watched them all on YouTube. Mm. And then I, I knew I had a rough estimate of, of what my daily mileage would be and I, and I had a program um, and I utterly ruined it for myself because there wasn't really that much adventure. No. I, I, I'd already done it online. It, it was almost like doing it in virtual reality before you go and do it in real life in real time. And I suppose in, in many ways, that's a good thing because I had, Coley was with us on that trip and he brought his two young daughters. One was 17 and one was 15. And a number of wives and partners. And I just wanted to be sure that everyone was safe. Everybody was safe. So, yeah. Just for reference, Ian Coleman was one of our lecturers, or one of my lecturers yeah. at the University of Chichester. He's still a good pal of mine. I still see him. Well, that's good. I, I speak with him. I haven't seen much of him the last 12 months, but uh, I'll hopefully see him later this year. I think he's going to come up in August. Oh, that'd be great. Well, I, I mean, not many people have seen each other in the last year anyway, because of COVID. Um, but, that, but, that, but that's interesting. I just wanted to get that one in there. And you, you sort of touched on what we'll talk about later on. But... Um, it's, it's interesting to, to talk to you about that and you feel like you sort of had virtually run it. So you, it sort of took the, the better word, took the fun out of it for you, the adventure. The adventure and the mystique, I think. Yeah. Yeah. There were no surprises. Not, not, not in terms of the rapids anyway. That's a good practitioner making sure that he knows what, what he's getting into basically. Well, um, I mean, we'll move on to like the, the proper topic, uh, in this section um and we'll talk about um you know how has technology changed over over your time in the outdoors and, and how you've interacted with it um and that's not just talking about digital that's also talking about the sort of the canoes and, and things like that how has it changed over over your lineage in the outdoor industry that's that is a vast topic and you know, you, you don't realise just how much things have changed until you take pause and actually think about it. So when I think about boats, my first ever kayak, my, my, my dad nicknamed it the Queen Mary. It was um, <laughs> made out of fiberglass. It was about 11 feet long. It wasn't a sea kayak. It was just this huge, long kind of cylindrical monster um, that weighed far more than it probably needed to um oh so I, I, this was the early 80s 84 85 when i started paddling it had probably been around for a good 20 years before i had it so you can say 60s and i suppose it's what they had then um that I, I mentioned some of my mates earlier marcus and Anne jackson both good paddlers and they lived in a house that overlooked this outdoor swimming pool at time of. And just like my dad, their dad had a, had grown up in this house overlooking the sea and, and had an affinity with the sea. And 
uh, one of the first kayaks that they used was a canvas you know, stretched over a, a wooden frame. Um, but he nearly, well, he did sink that. And I, I think he uh, gave himself a bit of a fright. So, yeah, I mean, we've seen pretty significant changes in craft construction and craft design um, from that first big fiberglass tank. Um, boats were predominantly plastic after that point, un unless they were high performance craft for generally for competition. So um, composite materials continued in slalom and polo boats, um, wave ski manufacture, um, surf kayak manufacture. Um, but but much more sophisticated sophisticated techniques like vac bagging to to impregnate the the resin deep into the the membrane of the the material, um, and you know they can do much more sophisticated and clever things with with craft design. But then, if I go from craft to the equipment we we wore, well, in those early days it was orange Peter Storm cagoules with a a nylon with it with a a rubberized membrane or a literally like a sou'wester type waterproof with a woolly pulley underneath like a bear isle sweater um i remember i was in the scout so i must have been about 14 getting my first polar fleece which yeah. was this slinky little blue and yellow number um and that that, that was kind of high tech then yeah. Um, I, I, I've actually still got in the cupboard upstairs, I've still got my, uh, what do they call it? Micro fleece, I think it is. When I worked for City of Newcastle Outdoor Education Service, I, after I'd been a trainee, when I graduated to sort of being paid by them, they gave a staff uniform, which was a mountain equipment fleece. I think it's called micro fleece mm -hmm. um, with a embroidered thing on. And again, that that was another step up from just the, the bog standard fleece that I'd got five years earlier. Um, waterproofs probably, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you had the same down south, you'd have to ask your parents because you wouldn't have been around at this stage. But from me being about 12 or 13, um, Berghaus was a, a local company in the northeast, both Berghaus and um Phoenix, hmm. which then went on to become Carrymore, um, were, were local manufacturers, and it was also around the time of ram raiding. So lots of factories that were making quite sort of sexy, good quality kit were getting ram raided, and all of the neck enders uh, of Walker and Wall's End and, and all of these other kind of lower economic parts of Newcastle um, had young lads wandering around in like 300 pound. <laughs> Berghouse jackets that was 300 pounds then, not 300 pounds now. Like that, the most Gucci kit that you yeah. could possibly imagine. Um, but I didn't get my first Gore Tex jacket until I was 19 or 20. I got something called Simpatex, I think, mm. when I was about 18, maybe 17, 18. But yeah, I must have been 20 or 21 before I got my first Gore Tex jacket. But yeah, drifting back to the technology thing, early 20s, I, I remember for Christmas getting a, a camera. It, it was, I think it was an Olympus camera. And look, people of my generation will remember them. It was like a, a gray and red 
plastic combination and it was waterproof. Um, but it took, you know, 35 millimeter film. Um, and it, it, it was automatic, but it, I mean, it was literally a waterproof version of a point and press. Um, and, and even, I don't know if you remember these, but you used to get disposable cameras. Mm. So before, before this camera, uh, you used to get these little paper disposable cameras and then somebody had the idea of wrapping them in plastic. So we would take them on the river. Um, and now I just take my mobile phone. Yeah. Out, video somebody. I can show them straight away what they're looking at. Or, or if I'm down the beach, I'll take an iPad because it's a bit bigger. Um, or, or, or on a, see if I was working at Teesside on the Whitewater course, I could use an iPad and I could literally show them there and then what they're looking at and you, you download to an app like Coach's Eye and all of a sudden it can begin to annotate that image and you know back in the day it was a little paper camera in a, a plastic case and you would have to set you use all 24 exposures up and you'd have to send it off to the chemist and get it back a week later before you had and, and the chances are that 90% of the photos were absolute junk yeah Shaky, shaky little things that you know, yeah. couldn't get the fast exposures that you need to actually get the uh, get the coaching that you need. Yeah. If, you, if you're paddling on a, a gloomy day on the speed when the uh, the cloud comes right down to tree level and there's no light, they were, they were really quite hopeless. Yeah, but it was all that we had. Um, I remember when GPSs first started to appear on the GPS started to appear on the scene um i these days i use like the ordnance survey app so i can get whatever one to 25 or one to fifty thousand scale on my phone and it, it'll um position me re relative to to the map um but for years i i did resist gps i don't know if it was the fear of the unknown but uh, i just i always took the mindset I don't think I'm necessarily what your class is a, a first adopter, Craig. Is, yeah. that, is that the right term? That, that is, that is that's, that's the right term. Yeah. Early adopter, early adopter. Um, yeah, GPS. I just thought, well, if I can read a map, why don't I need a computer to do that for me? Just read the map. Um, so, yeah, I, I sort of resisted that. But uh, I do use that as a tool now with the students if I'm out. And, um, I, I, and you know what else it's good for? Is when... You get old and you start to go blind. <laughs> uh, I can zoom in on my phone really easily if I'm if I'm struggling to make out the features on the uh, on the paper map. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm getting the feeling here that that you know, certainly with the 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 sort of clothing and equipment and stuff is that with the advent of um, advancements in technology that it has become a lot uh, a lot more accessible so you're saying that uh, you're you know these 300 pound um Berghaus cortex stuff back back in back in what was it the 80s or the 90s you know yeah um it, that would have been only accessible to well um, people that aren't or their social economic status would be more than say a working class individual um it's, it's really interesting and you know it makes life easier having all of these technological advancements that are cheaper to have um 
because like Nick was saying when I was interviewing him, he said that you can have a thinner wetsuit, but it still does the same, it still has the same benefits as, as like the old school thicker wetsuits would have had. So you can do more and be lighter doing it. Yeah, that, that's a really good example, actually. I mean, my, my first wetsuit um, was probably, it was a five millimeter long john wetsuit that we would wear a cag and the woolly jumper underneath and it wasn't a dry cag. Um, and it might as well have been made out of cardboard in terms of the the way it would respond to your movement and your body. If I go, if I were to fast forward 10 years or 15 years, yeah, let's go 15 years until I was 25, um, wetsuits had, had, had changed a lot. They, they were improving. Um, but fast forward another 20 years to now, um, absolutely amazing what they can do with petroleum and non-petroleum based rubbers. Um, you've got Patagonia and other companies trying to do the more ethically sourced and sustainable approaches to creating rubber. Um, that, that's a relatively recent thing. Um, companies like Excel and Rip Curl, and, and I'll be honest, I, I don't know where they stand currently on, on how they make their rubber, but, but I want to say for the, for the last 15 years, the standard and the quality of the material that they make it and you know the, the amount of time it allows you to spend in the water, um, that lightness and, and comfort um, is absolutely incredible. And the, the contrast to what we had all those years ago is so stark. I guess one of the other um, bits in the outdoors would, that would be quite interesting to speak about is, is climbing as well. Um, because I remember talking to Coley um, where he was sort of, he said he was kind of in that pioneering age of, of climbing as, as technology was changing. Uh, just if you wanted to touch a bit on that and talk about how the, the climbing gears changed as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, the climbing rack today is infinitely lighter than it was 25 years ago. And obviously 25 years ago, it was relatively light to what, what they had 25 years before that. Um, but it, it, again, uh, and w when I worked in America, it, at that time over here, outdoor sport or adventure sport participation was generally facilitated through mates or through club settings, so canoe clubs, climbing clubs, whatever. Um, when I went to America, I saw this whole other cultural shift where people much more readily paid to be led and guided on trips. And, and I remember thinking back then, I wonder if the UK will follow suit, and it, and it kind of has. Um, well, there's no kind of, it, it definitely has. Um, you know, we, we have this sort of outdoor zeitgeist situation at the minute you can't turn the tv on without there being some program with half our celebrity being lowered out of a helicopter to eat a rotten moose with bear grills or whatever there is um the adventure show scottish based tv program i don't know if you get that south of the border but um that that that's uh, kind of part of the bbc mainstream comes out every few months 
that's a really good program that I enjoy watching. Every man and their dog is out there doing outdoor stuff now. And that has that appetite, you know, to a capitalist society. So that so the the money that these companies are able to charge creates much more opportunity for R and D. Equipment is just being improved exponentially. So um the, you know the weight and strength combinations of pieces of climbing protection, carabiners, um, the stuff that you attach your climbing hardware to, carabiner, uh, quick draws, lengths of tape. Back in the day, it, your tape would be at least an inch thick. These days, you're getting slings that are five millimeters thick. And, and the same for, you, you know, waterproofs. Going back to my, my first blue and yellow Berghaus jacket that, that was three-ply Gore-Tex jacket, so a heavy winter waterproof jacket. Now people are out in the mountains in stuff that is like a thin membrane um, doing as good, if not better, a job. And of course, the insulation layers as well. You know, not, not just fleeces and um, wicking layers, but the, the availability and, and, and scope of options in um, synthetic and downfill insulation garments that you can wear underneath your, your waterproof layers um, is, is just staggering. You know. Would you say that it's actually made your life easier as a, as a practitioner as, it, as, it's, as the technology has changed? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely getting soft in the old age, Craig, and, and I have, or certainly over the last 12 years, I have been mindful of having less time to acclimatise in the water. When I, when I was a kid, probably be, before I started working in the leisure centres, I worked in the freezers for a local supermarket. So Saturdays, I, I would be in there minus 26 degrees or whatever it was, and uh, I'd surf right through the window without batting an eyelid. I went to work in the leisure centres, you know, ambient temperature of about 80 degrees Fahrenheit in the leisure centre environment. I definitely noticed the difference in how keen I was to get in the water, and we are creatures of habit. And you know, while we, um, it's kind of the boiling the frog metaphor, isn't it? You, uh, a, a little bit like me in the leisure centres, I, I got kind of used to just being warmer more of the time, um, so wasn't so keen to get in the the, win the water in the depths of winter in the northeast. Um, by the same token, at forty six and not paddling as much as I, I would like to have done over the last 12 years. Um, I'm not sure when, when I made the move up here, if, if, that if kit hadn't been so good. So if my peak dry suit and peak dry cag and my rip curl wetsuits um, weren't so good, whether I'd be quite so keen to kind of be chucking myself in amongst it. And with the guys that I've sort of piled up with in Perth now, we were surfing right through the winter on um, some of the standing waves, but our, our, so stand-up paddleboard surfing rather, rather it's a it's a different prospect being in a wetsuit in the water than it is being in the cozy confines of your kayak, where you're quite safe and warm. Um, but the kit is just so good these days, and I do wonder where it'll go over the next twenty-five years. Um, what we are already seeing it across 
sport disciplines. We're seeing garments with heater elements in them. So whether it's in ski boots or or wetsuits, you know, you, you've got battery fueled heater elements to to help people stay warm. That's obviously got to be the future. But um, beyond that, I don't know. I, Maybe that's why I'm not in retail. I haven't got the imagination or creativity to think where things will, will go next. But um, it, inevitably, it will because we're a pretty creative species. Yeah, we adapt to we adapt to change wherever wherever possible. Yeah. Um. So I, I mean, yeah. So we'll move on to to the last the last section. Basically, uh, uh, you you've been a wealth of knowledge, and it's actually been very uh, interesting to to talk to you about it. It's, I think it's the further back you go, the more interesting it is because you you've seen such a diverse change. Mm -hmm. Um. We'll, we'll talk about a bit more about the digital side of things as well. Um, and and how do you think that's affected your your daily life uh, now compared to when when you were younger? You know, you're working from home at the moment because of the COVID. Um, and so yeah, just talk us through a bit of how you think technology uses has changed your life as you've grown up. Well, if I were to focus on the last fifteen months, Craig. Um, it's had a fairly profound effect, um, and I'm not sure that's necessarily for the better. So, as you outlined at the start, I I, I teach on a or run a, an outdoor education program or programs in the local college slash UHI institution, and um, our degree students have had almost entirely on well not almost entirely have had entirely online. Delivery. We managed to, because restrictions eased, we were able to get them on some more recreational than pedagogical outdoor activity sessions right at the end of the semester. Um, but to be honest, only a handful of them took up that opportunity. The FA students, again, we've had to run an entire year's course almost completely online. Um, the FA students have had more practical provision. Um, between October and Christmas, they would get maybe a day a week. Um, and then after Easter, they got a day a week. No, they, after Easter, actually, they got, they got much more. But um, we've, we, we've had to create a, a program that for the FA students, which was almost exclusively outdoors, um, to being 75% indoors in, in front of a computer um, and the outdoor degree program was exclusively indoors. Um, it's been a really busy year coming up with content to meet the curriculum needs and the student needs in a, an entirely online format. So I'm, I'm not entirely reconciled on whether having that option was a good thing or a bad thing because if we didn't have it i think we could have done more outdoors but because we did have it it, it created a bit of a crutch and a a hyper safe option you know we, uh, we we were delivering online to degree students when outdoor education centers were fully operational so it's debatable whether we needed to be online that that said i can understand why um managers took a, 
a very safety focused stance and wanted to just kind of set the tone for the rest of the year. But um, it's had a, a fairly profound effect. Um, that said, I think the students have valued what we've done and they have learned and they, and they have developed. Um, and I suppose that comes down in part to the staff team working on the degree and their creativity and their subject knowledge specialisms and ability to create quality learning experiences with, with having that digital mechanism to provide a medium for that. Obviously key. Um, you were saying earlier about how you were sort of not wanting to take GoPros and that sort of thing whilst you were doing your own personal stuff. So touch touch on that. It's it's a case of as you've grown up, these technologies have come to the forefront in in this. So you've got huge industries now. You've got Red Bull that all that really focus on that. So just you talk about your your time in the outdoors and and how technology changed throughout that. Yeah, I I, I do feel. That it's uh, that, that, and I think well, I'm going to use the term sullied, but I think the outdoors has been sullied in so many ways, Craig. Um, now, of of course, it should be the outdoors should be open to everybody. There's a Facebook group that I won't name that refers to an area of the country that I'm I know particularly well. And I can differentiate between where I am now and this particular area of the country. I don't think it's just a consequence of naturally increasing population levels. I'm, I can say with some confidence that social media in particular has created these honeypot locations. Um, so if you go to particular areas, particular places in the, this part of the country that would have been a place to get away from people and then interact with mother nature and enjoy that connection with wild places and open spaces um, it, it's now not it's, it, it's social media has ultimately ruined it um, and I, I have absolutely no objection to folks getting out and, and accessing places if they earn it, if they yeah. seek them out. But the, the biggest thing for me is that whether it's, you know, you, you named Red Bull there as a, a, a key protagonist, I, I suppose, in, 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 or a key actor in, in this field, that the, the popularization of adventure sports um, and Red Bull contributing to that, but then adventure sports mix in the, the, the natural environment element or, or the more natural environment element, which has it, its own influences like this. There's probably not just the one Facebook group that uh, with it all becoming so popular and it's, it's almost viral, you know, um, in, in the formative years of my being involved in the outdoor sector, um, we saw increases in numbers of people turning up places, perhaps more people in the surf at time out. Um, but the explosion 
of folks getting out there and being in these places is a little bit irksome because they just get it from the click of a button. So we'll go with it. Yeah. And I remember doing GCSE geography with Mr. Douglas at St. Thomas More High School in 1980, whatever it was. Um, Tourists destroy that which they come to enjoy was one of the, the topics and it, it always resonated with me that and that's what we see happening yeah. you know, in, in your job but th those people that come and just defile the countryside in yeah. your work area um, that leave their tents their rubbish and other waste strewn across the, the countryside yeah, the, the feeling I'm getting here is that because social media has made these areas so available for people to know where they are, that it's kind of losing the adventure of going into the outdoors. Because like you, like you were saying, in your when you were taking your group on the Grand Canyon, um, you, you were able to view all of the really dangerous rapids beforehand. Yeah. Um, so there is the element of the unknown that really makes adventure what uh, adventure. Um, you know, if you can, if you know where you're going and you know what the good bits are and that sort of thing. Um, this is the, this is the feeling I'm getting from what you're saying is that using technology is actually ruining the adventure of finding new places. Yeah, it is. I mean that's a, that's a that's a very interesting point of view on it because uh, you, you know as you were saying I work as a as a park ranger and a lot of the time ninety five percent of people will come and they'll camp and they'll leave it in a, in a nice nice place but there are the certain few that will come and they'll just leave everything strewn and 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 it ruins it or well personally for me it does get to the point where you're sort of like how where have we got to as a society that you you're no longer looking after the places that people find adventurous? Mm -hmm. It'll it'll be interesting to see how that pans out in twenty to thirty years' time. But we are seeing more education within schools that, that has a, a, a connectedness to nature focus, a, a, an outdoor focus, a forest schools focus. Um, and, and that, that, that's come about in part as a result of the recognition that if people don't have a, an, an innate affection or love for the natural environment, then how can you expect them to want to care for it and protect it? Well, we're kind of at the bottom of that, or maybe it's not the bottom, but we're, we're definitely in the, uh, the tr in the trough somewhere on that curve because society drifted very rapidly as drifted sprinted away from that in the 70s 80s 90s um, and it's only in the last decade or so that we've, we've started to see the change i wonder how long it'll take for us to see the consequence of the change and whether or not the change has been sufficient yeah well i i, I think that'll be a generational thing. Yeah. 
I think you're right on that. And it's nice to see that we are starting to really do that at the grassroots level, teaching people how to take care of their environment and their the, the, na the nature and their natural areas that they have. It's, it's nice to see, uh, you know, both you and I are avid lovers of the outdoors and, and adventures. And, you know, we try to educate that wherever we can. So, yeah. um, well, that's brilliant. Um, I mean, you know, I didn't have to ask many questions in that final bit because you basically covered everything I was going to ask. <laughs> so that's brilliant. Um, it's been fascinating to talk to you about, um, about your time in the outdoors and your uses of technology and how it's changed and then how you think it's actually changing um, culture and, and society. So I'd like to finish on a, a little bit of a, a, a joke and have, have some relaxed conversation um, because it can get quite quite serious. So I ask everyone this, say, um, if money wasn't an issue and time wasn't an issue, um, would you go and spend a year off grid, completely off grid? Um, where would it be and why? why? In a heartbeat. Um... The next part of the question, though, is difficult. It's more difficult. Mm -hmm. There's so many options. Would it be a year-round summer with a variety of breaks within walking distance or cycling distance of where I lived? Or would it be somewhere that had seasons like somewhere like British Columbia, paddling and surfing in the summer months and snowboarding in the, the winter months. But I guess it, hang on, does, does off-grid mean that you can't get on a, a lift queue? Would, would, would you have to? Oh, no, I, I mean, off-grid is just like you, you're away from technology uh, and it, it can go as far as being um, uh, being off the grid. So no, tech, uh, no running water, no power, that sort of thing as well. So. Oh. Really at the discretion of the uh, the guest. I'll tell you what. Okay, I've been surfing since I was ten years old, and uh, surfing, kayaks and skis. That is, um, yeah, I, I stand up surf as well. But uh, I've, it's something I've been doing. Sat down surfing with paddles in my hands for thirty six years. Mm -hmm. It would be nice to have the opportunity to have a year of summer with a, a whole load of breaks outside and a variety of aspects, maybe on a, a piece of land or, or island that, that has, like I say, 360 degree aspects. Um, and if we're, if we're going no electricity, no running water, then it would be nice to be solar powered surfing in board shorts and immerse myself in that for a year because after 36 years of doing it i'm pretty sure i could and that intensively at times i've never ever got bored i always love it so that's great yeah if i could only take a, a few different craft and some good books that would be awesome yeah Anywhere in particular, I, I'm guessing it would be a tropical area. Yeah, it would have to be somewhere hot. Um, 
I never made it to South America. As I said at the earlier on, not at the start, I was supposed to go to Baja. Um, I've surfed the, the, the western seaboard of North America, but I never made it into South America. So maybe somewhere like Costa Rica Creek, because that was always on my list as well. So we got Nicaragua, or Nicaragua, as the Americans call it. <laughs> um, yeah. I think, again, and, and this is kind of technology-related, I'm not that drawn to Indonesia and Bali. I think they're already mm -hmm. ruined. If, uh, if I was going to go on a surf trip, I'd probably rather go to the west coast of Ireland or the west coast of Africa or even just even yeah. just Scotland, you know, the, the Hebrides then go to a lineup that's just filled with lots and lots of other people because they destroy that which they come to enjoy. And I would probably contribute to that as well. So it would be utterly wrong of me to um to contribute to that number. Well, thanks very much for that, Chris. Glad to glad to have had you on. And uh, yeah, thanks again. Thank you, Craig. That was that was uh, I don't know how an hour and forty minutes of uh, of therapy talking about myself. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you, you 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 got me thinking about some good memories. So thank you. No, that's all right. Big thanks to Chris for being on the Unplugged Debate this week. On the next episode, we have Tim Messer giving his perspective on the Unplugged Debate. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>